Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, the Apostle Paul writes this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Friends, Jesus is our rescuer and our redeemer. In Christ, we have atonement. We are cleansed from sin and guilt and shame. Jesus is our redeemer. He rescues us from the bondage of sin, the bondage of death. And this is good news for us today. If you've been with us for a few weeks, you know we've been going through the book of Deuteronomy. And today we are in Deuteronomy chapter 21 seeing how Christ is our atonement and our redemption, seeing how the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy points us to Jesus. As Paul writes in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That is a throwback to Deuteronomy 21 where we are today. So I want us to see today how Deuteronomy 21 points us to Jesus and how the Apostle Paul in Galatians was referring to this uh, huge chunk of good news from the Old Testament. As we've seen before, anytime the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament, we can't just look at the one line or the one snippet that's quoted, but rather we see it it's, takes us back to the whole context, the whole theme. And so we're going to see that today in Deuteronomy. So let me pray. Uh, God, please be with us this morning as we open your word. God, I pray that you um, would open our minds to understand, open our hearts to receive the good news of Jesus, his gospel. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would shape us to be more like him. Uh, God, you are good to us, and we thank you for your goodness, and we pray that goodness would uh, wreck us in such a good way, humble us. God, that you would take away all fear, guilt, shame and you would restore us to joy in you. We ask this in Christ's good and holy name. Amen. Deuteronomy 21, verses 1 through 9. If in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, someone is found slain, lying in open country, and it is not known who killed him, then then your elders and your judges shall come out. They shall measure the distance from the surrounding cities. And the elders of the city nearest the slain man shall take a heifer that has never been worked and is not pulled in a yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priest, the son of Levi, shall come forward, and the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him, to bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word, every dispute and every assault shall be settled." And all the elders of the city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. And they shall testify, our hands did not shed his blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, so that their blood guilt may be atoned for." So you shall purge the guilt of the innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. This is God's word. Friends, today we're looking at atonement and redemption. And I'll be honest with you, when I open books of the Old Testament, and as we've been going through Deuteronomy, there's a lot of contextual, cultural things that are hard to wrestle with. And as I was studying this week, and in light of the tragedy in Charleston, trying to see how God takes sinful, wicked people 
and makes them clean. How God takes people who are in bondage, whether that be physical bondage like Israel was in Egypt, enslaved, or spiritual bondage bound to sin, bound to death, bound to fear, guilt, bound to pride and religious, religious legalism, seeing how God frees his people, redeems them from that. And as I was meditating on this, verse 8, accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people so that their blood guilt may be atoned for. So the two things we're going to look at today that are tightly related are atonement and redemption. Atonement and redemption. Atonement means to be cleansed, to be pardoned for wrongdoing. In essence, it means to be forgiven. Redemption means to be set free. It has the imagery of a slave being purchased and then set free. I've often referred to Springfield Baptist Church, which is just a couple blocks over, how in the 1800s their pastor, Kelly Lowe, was a slave. And as their church grew, over a thousand people, their congregation gathered enough money to purchase his freedom so that he could be their full-time pastor. And that church went on to plant many churches and start Christian schools, one that moved to Atlanta and became Morehouse College. And so this week I was looking to see what is, what is the relationship between redemption and atonement, how God can set people free so that he can cleanse them and pardon them from their guilt. And seeing how what happens in that is that those who have been redeemed move on and thrive in freedom to proclaim redemption to those who are in captivity. Those who have been covered in guilt and shame and sin and then are set free or pardoned and cleansed, go on to proclaim that freedom, that cleansing, that pardon in Christ. And this week, the tragedy in Charleston, which is just obviously um, just wrecked so many lives. And I, I, was, I was praying and thinking and, and uh, God just does amazing things through his people. If you read the history of Emmanuel Amy Church in Charleston, you see that uh, being in the South, being in Charleston, um, the history of the South with slavery and the history of, of how the gospel worked out of those who were set free from very physical slavery. Redemption. <laughs> those who were physically enslaved in the South eventually set free and how a church in Charleston was planted and thrived, proclaiming, embodying the gospel for Charleston, even to this day, this week. And I was reading a little about the history of that church, thinking, wow, what a beautiful portrait of redemption, how, how God's people were very physically set free, and how this church is like thriving and doing mighty things. And in the midst of that, this horrible tragedy happens this week, where a guy walks in and murders nine people, including the pastor. And I saw on the news this week, I just still can't wrap my head around it because that, that kind of stuff angers me and frustrates me and just senseless violence. And you may have seen this. Many, many news sources report this, and I'll, I'll take mine from uh, people. Some of the families were able to address the killer. You know, the guy who comes in, kills their family, 
kills members of their church. And time and time again, people were saying, we forgive you. We forgive you. Here's a quote. Anthony Thompson, husband of the slain Myra Thompson, said this, I forgive you. My family forgives you. We would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Repent. Confess to the one that matters the most so that he can change it, so that he can change your ways no matter what happened to you. That happened this week. That is a man who gets redemption, who gets atonement, a man who has been greatly wronged, whose wife was murdered. And he looks the murderer in the eye and says, I've been forgiven, I can forgive you. You have wronged our family, but our family forgives you because we know what forgiveness is. We know what freedom in Christ is. He goes on to say, you need to repent. You need to confess your sin to the one that matters. You need to repent so that he can change you. Friends, that is the beauty of redemption and atonement. This is what God does for his people throughout all generations. Thousands of years ago, this is what happened to Israel in Deuteronomy 21. And just a couple days ago, this is what we see in Charleston. Because God has a way of shaping people, changing people. When Jesus, when when God rescues people, redeems people, he changes them so that they will then proclaim his goodness. When they have been forgiven, they forgive. When they have been loved, they will love. When they have been comforted, they will comfort. When they have been set free, they proclaim freedom. That's such good news. So I want to ask you this question today. If atonement means being pardoned from sin and wrongdoing, I want us first to look what sin and wrongdoing, what dirtiness, what weight are you carrying today? It may be something you've done. It may be something you're thinking of doing. It may be something you were tied up and caught up of. It may be something very personal. It may be something with your family. It may be something very social or cultural. What is weighing you down that you're saying, God, cleanse me from this dirty thing because there are personal sins and family sins and social, cultural sins in the South? What what weights do we have on us saying, God, please cleanse us from this. Please pardon us from this. Think about that. Secondly, in what ways are you trying to free yourself from that? Because we look here in Deuteronomy 21 and see this is a portrait of who Jesus is and what he does. When, when some sin, some wickedness, some dirty thing has happened, verse 8, accept atonement, O Lord, for your people whom you have redeemed. God had redeemed them. God had set them free from bondage. God had set them free from slavery. God was leading them to a new land so that they could thrive as his people. And in the midst of that being set free, being led, being taken over here to thrive, in the midst of that, there's still dirtiness. There's still wickedness. There's still sin. And the cry of God's people is, Lord, accept atonement. We want to be atoned for. What follows are instructions of what that looks like. These are 
prescriptive things for Israel, but not for you and I today. We do not take a heifer and do this ceremonial sacrifice in order to be atoned for. Rather, Christ is the final sacrifice who does that for us. Our atonement is in Christ. But look what happens in the verses that follow. Because I was trying to connect the dots here thinking, what, you know, what's, what's God, what's God had for us today? What does God have for us from his word and in light of what's happening in our world today? Like, what does God have for us and how does all of chapter 21 connect? It starts off by saying, hey, there's redemption and atonement that God does for his people. And then it goes on to talk about acquiring wives through conquest. It goes on to talk about how to treat your sons and give them an inheritance for the sons you love. Today's Father's Day, so if you're here today and you're a father, you're thinking, all right, well, I want to do right by my son. It instructs you on how to treat a rebellious son. So let's look at that real quick. Verse 10, when you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God gives them into your hand and you take them captive and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and you desire to take her to be your wife, you will bring her home to your house. She shall shave her head and pare her nails. She shall take off the clothes in which she was captured and remain in your house and lament her father and her mother a full month. After that, you may go to her and be her husband. She shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. You shall not sell her for money. You shall not treat her as a slave since you have humiliated her. That's a very hard cultural text, right? Like just a few verses earlier, we hear about God redeeming his people, setting them free. We hear about them being cleansed and pardoned from sin. And all of a sudden there's instruction of what to do if you go to war and you conquer people and take somebody as your wife by conquest. This is not prescriptive for you and I. This is descriptive of what was prescriptive for Israel. But I was looking at that and thinking, just hang with me because we're going to try to connect some dots here. That is instruction of what happens in that cultural context when you were to conquer someone and acquire a wife. But there's more instructions. There's something about marriage. Something about marriage there. Hold on, hold on to that. Verse 15. If a man has two wives, one loved, the other unloved, and both the love and unloved have borne him children, and the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the love and the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn, but he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of what he has. For it is the first fruits of his strength, the right of the firstborn is his. Okay, again, you're probably like, where are you going with this? All right, so there's this great news about redemption and atonement, and then there's all of a sudden this thing about how to treat your wife that you conquer forcibly through war. There's instruction about what to do with children. I mean, if you have more than one wife and you have son of an unloved and a son of a loved, what does that look like? So there's instruction about marriage, as messy as it seems in this context. There's instruction about what to do with your children and the inheritance, depending on uh, how that works out in this messy context. Look at this next set of verses. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, isn't that a great Father's Day sermon? Happy Father's Day. Oh, your son is rebellious and stubborn. Who will not obey the voice of the father or the voice of his mother. And though they discipline him, he will not listen to them. Then his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him out of the elders of his city at the gate and place where he lives. 
And they shall say to the elders of the city, this our son is rebellious, stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst and all of Israel shall hear and fear. This is not prescriptive for us. Although some of you may be like, you don't, haven't met my son. So you and I look at these passages of scripture, scripture saying, how does this tie in to this good news of redemption, right? I mean, the good news is that people are set free in Christ. They are redeemed. They are, they are taken from slavery and burdens and sin and brokenness. And they're led to be a free people thriving as God's people. Their guilt and sin is atoned for. They are cleansed. They are changed. How does this fit into that? I mean, isn't there supposed to be forgiveness? Why would somebody stone their rebellious son to death? Why would somebody take a wife forcibly and if they don't like her anymore, they get rid of her? Why would would somebody show partiality to some other son from a different wife? (laughs) I've read a ton on this this week and was wrestling with this because, as I said earlier, the Apostle Paul in chapter 5 of Galatians quotes a section of this. So he's, he's taking our minds to what freedom in Christ looks like and throwing us back into this context. And here's what I think maybe God wants us to take away from this. Can you imagine being an Israelite? Just, just I know it's hard for us to be like, what, what are you talking about, you know? Imagine being an Israelite, hearing God's word from Moses. Imagine trying to come to grips with how to treat your wife, how to treat your kids, how to treat rebellion. Because I think what would happen, because this is what happens to me. If you're a parent, you know if, if you're trying to walk with the Lord and you're like, my kid is testing my patience, if you pause for a minute, you'll think, well, how often do I test the Lord's patience, right? My son is being rebellious, and you think, well, I'm a rebellious child against my heavenly father. You know, I, my son is doubting me and, and doesn't believe me when I try to instruct him. How often do we doubt and disbelieve the Lord when he instructs us? So I imagine that Israel as they're hearing this instruction about how to navigate their marital relationships in the culture that they were in, how to navigate their children relationships in that culture. I can't imagine anyone finding great joy when it comes to disciplining their children to death. I can't imagine. But this points us to Jesus. Jesus is God's son who was not rebellious. He was the faithful, obedient son of God. In fact, when we look through scripture, we we, we look as Jesus being the faithful, obedient son of God who is so fully obedient, he takes our sin upon him for our atonement so that we would be redeemed and in turn gives us his righteousness as if we were obedient children. This is pointing us to Jesus. 
This is showing us that God is serious about his holiness, that God is serious about our obedience. And as we were to look at the brutality of sin and the effects of brokenness and the effects of rebellion and look to God saying, but, but God, in verse 8, you just, you just said that, you, you just reminded us that we are your people who have been redeemed, that we're your people who have atonement, that we have been rescued and we have been cleansed and we have been pardoned. If you've pardoned us, how, how can we not pardon our son? How can we not pardon our wives? How can we not pardon those who have wronged us? See, this is a portrait of Jesus and us. This is a portrait of God and his people throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. We see that God is seen as a husband chasing his wayward bride. We see that God is a father chasing his wayward children. We see that Jesus is the faithful, obedient son who stands in the place of us as rebellion, rebellion sons and daughters. You see, we're the ones who get the inheritance that belongs to the faithful, obedient son, even though we are not. When we look at redemption and atonement and we apply it to our messy context, we cannot look at the law, but we have to see what the law points us to. I imagine that as a father would be standing at the city gates about to participate in the execution of his son. Again, descriptive for us, not prescriptive. This is not what we are to do. We're to see what happens and how it points us to Jesus. But I imagine the heartbreak of a father having to, to see this and participate in this to his son. And I imagine as a father sitting there saying, this, my son's rebellion is ending his life and disrupting the community and my heart is breaking. And I imagine that father would look to God and say, God, you are my father and your heart must break when I rebel and when I sin. And then God looks down and says, yes, but uh, my punishment is not on you. I'm going to take that punishment that's due you. I'm going to put it on my obedient, faithful son, Jesus. And that inheritance that belongs to him, he's going to give it to you. And this is what God's people would see and witness and be like, how is this going to happen? How is this possible? This, this needs to happen. We need rescue. We need atonement. We need cleansing. We need healing. We need restoration. And look what happens in verse 22 of Deuteronomy 21. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death, you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain there all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. That is quoted by the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5. Or sorry, Galatians 3. As the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Galatia and is proclaiming what freedom in Christ looks like, being free from the curse of the law, being free from the curse of sin, being free from bondage of guilt and shame and religious legalism, saying, hey, look, the law is good, but the law points to Jesus, Paul quotes this line to bring the readers back to this whole passage. So that, so that the readers like you and I would be like, well, what, what is the context? When Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 
That means that Jesus is our redemption. Jesus is our atonement. Jesus is the one who takes our punishment and gives us his righteousness. Jesus is the obedient son who steps in place of the rebellious son and says, stone me instead and give him freedom. Jesus is the one that steps in and says, hey, look, my bride is not what she should be, but I'm going to step in and I'm going to rescue her. Jesus is the one that says, hey, look, my people need atonement, but rather than than kill a heifer, I'm going to stand in the place and die in the place so that they get the atonement that they don't deserve, but God graciously wants to give. Are you with me? Hard text, hard context, but this points us to Jesus. Jesus is our redemption. Jesus is our atonement. Paul again writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ, we are no longer a wayward bride, but we are the bride of Christ. In Christ, we are no longer seen as rebellious sons, but obedient, as Paul writes in Romans 8. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. In Christ, we are no longer a lost child, but one with eternal inheritance. As Paul writes in Galatians 4, 5, that Jesus redeemed those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is good news. This means that in Christ, we have redemption and atonement. And those who have been redeemed proclaim redemption. Those who have been pardoned and forgiven proclaim forgiveness. Those who have been wronged against No longer say, give me a stone to throw that I may kill that person, but rather, God has forgiven me. I want them to know forgiveness. That is why we can look in amazement and weep with joy of the gospel that Anthony Thompson can look to the man who murdered his wife and friends and pastor and say, we want you to repent, repent, confess to the one that matters so that he can change it and change you no matter what happened to you. I forgive you, my family forgives you. That's the gospel at work. Can you say that? Can you say that to those who have wronged you? Can you say that to yourself and the sin and brokenness you find? Do you find yourself not grasping forgiveness and unable to forgive, not grasping the love of God, being unable to love, not being comforted and unable to comfort those who need comfort because in Christ, forgiven people forgive people. Loved people love people. Comforted people comfort people. Freed people proclaim freedom. That's the good news of the gospel. So I want to ask you this morning where you see yourself in the story, the story of Deuteronomy 21. Do you see yourself as a rebellious child? Do you, see, do you feel like you are an unloved child? Do you feel like you are a conquered bride, so to speak? Do you find yourself wrestling with sin and doubts and fear Do you look at that and say, man, I am doomed. (laughs) My life is a wreck. There's no way I can be forgiven. This rebellious son thing, I mean, if this was true today, I'd be stoned outside the city gates. If you are not a believer, I want you to know that in Christ, he stood in your place. Where you deserved death, 
he took it and gives you life. Where you deserve to be cast away, he takes that punishment and the Father draws you near. That's good news. It's only in Christ that we have that good news. So if you are not a believer, I want more than anything for you to consider the gospel of Jesus today to repent and believe the gospel. If you are a believer, we still wrestle with sin and doubts and disbelief. We still wrestle with forgiveness and love and comfort. So if you're a believer, I would ask that you join me in repenting, turning from our doubts and disbeliefs and rebellion that still fights in our soul, and then turning to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, believing, trusting that he is who he says he is, and he did what he said he would do. So we're going to have a time of response. And when we have that time of response, the worship team is going to come back and lead us. And you can respond by singing, by sitting and meditating, by praying. If you need to talk with someone before you also will see communion set up where we have bread and juice represents the body of Christ, the blood of Christ. Um, You can tear off the bread and dip it in the juice to remember who Jesus is and what he's done. That in Christ, we have redemption. In Christ, we have atonement. That's good news. It's something that we receive and celebrate, and it's something that we proclaim and demonstrate to each other. On the night that Jesus was arrested, he took bread, and after he gave thanks to God, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood, shed for your forgiveness of sin. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the saving death of the risen Lord until he comes. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you again for your goodness uh, to your people throughout all generations. And God, I pray that you would stir up our hearts and minds with your gospel this morning by your spirit. Lord, that we would see that you are our only hope, that in you, Jesus, we have redemption and atonement. In you, we have freedom and forgiveness. And God, I pray that we would not turn to any other source to look for that comfort, that we wouldn't turn toward uh, religiosity or spirituality or a good moral code or anything like that, but rather we would look to you as our Savior, our only hope, our only redemption, our only atonement. And God, I pray that good news would wreck us and shape us to be people that feel the grace so that we can extend grace to others, that we would understand the forgiveness we have so that we could forgive others, that we can understand the love and comfort you give us so that we could give that to others. Um, And God, we thank you for that. Lord, I, I praise you and thank you how that is demonstrated throughout the scriptures, throughout your church globally. God, how even that was demonstrated this week in Charleston by a man who lost his wife. And God, I pray that that good news of the gospel would ripple, that there would be a ridiculously wild revival by your spirit of the gospel in the South, in Charleston, in Augusta, that it would ripple to the nations, we ask. And Lord, I pray that you would do that work in our hearts and minds now personally in our marriages as a church called Redemption in Augusta, Georgia. We ask that you do it for the glory of your name and the good of your people and that the gospel would advance. We ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.